Well, good morning, Door Creek, and a, a hearty welcome to any of you who are guests. My name's Mark, if you didn't catch that from the video, and uh, one of the pastors here. I've been out on a summer break, so that's a combination of some time with family, vacation time, and some wonderful time of study and preparation, and it's just been a great time. One of the highlights was a trip that Luke and I, Luke just graduated from high school, so we did a, a father-son trip out to Yellowstone and back. And a lot of great memories, but probably this picture of literally from our campsite in the Tetons, I mean, it was, it was really a sweet time, and God gave us some really nice weather. So good to be back, excited to, uh, to present to you guys uh, Ross and Emily, really excited about that, really grateful for Bob and Libby's faithful ministry the last four and a half years, and if you didn't catch it a few months ago. Bob's going to be transitioning back to role here in congregational care, helping out with some global impact things. So we're excited about the transition. Let's be praying for North Campus and all the exciting ministries going on this week. So RD texted me that landed in New Orleans last night. He said it's a sauna and exciting week of ministry there. Madison Missions with our middle schoolers and and you'll see some coaches around this morning who are loving on kids of our church in the community, the Chicago Eagles. Well, on Friday, I sent out a note from Mark. I do that from time to time. If you don't get those, it's because you haven't filled out one of those communication cards. I don't think I've ever read a note from Mark before on the weekend, but because of the nature of this subject, as leaders, we just felt like it'd be good to just go back to it in case you didn't hear it or you don't receive it. And it has to do with this... Supreme Court's decision. So I'm just going to read it, and if you've read it already, forgive me, but it's good to repeat for those who haven't. On June 26, the Supreme Court, Ogerfell versus Hodges, ruled to legalize same-sex marriage. Many have asked what we think about this decision, wondering what Door Creek's position is on the matter. The key question to ask is always, what does God think? What does God say about this matter? As Christ followers, we center our lives on God's truth, desiring to understand and live out his truth and grace in all of life. So what are the biblical principles that guide us? Here are a few to consider. The Bible on marriage. Jesus affirmed what Moses recorded at the very beginning in Genesis 2.24. He's quoting that in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate the Bible's consistent teaching on marriage has been the view of Christ's church for 2,000 years, affirmed by many other religions and peoples across the globe. The changing tides of culture and of our court do not change God's good purposes for us in marriage. We continue to affirm what God has taught from the beginning. God's best for us in marriage is found in a covenant relationship between one man and one woman who by God's grace remain committed to loving each other throughout their lives. Monogamous, heterosexual, and permanent. Same-sex marriage is one way 
we miss God's best in marriage. Not the only way. The Bible on our identity. The Bible teaches us that every person is created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. We must see everyone with God's eyes and treat them with God's love. Our identity is to be found in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to restore the image of God marred by our rebellion against him. Finding our identity in anything other than Christ will not ultimately satisfy. The Bible also teaches that all of us are sinners who are loved by God. God calls us to mourn our sin, to confess it, and find forgiveness as we turn to him, believing that Jesus died for our sin. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The Bible on our response. God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. God calls us to get the log out of our own eye. God calls us to mourn over sin, to confess it and find forgiveness. God calls us to extend his kindness as we engage people in our culture like Christ, full of grace and truth. God calls us to honor, respect, and pray for those in authority over us. God calls us to obey him. And if that brings suffering, to rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer like Christ. God calls us to trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. He's on the throne. We know where history is heading. We engage our world today faithfully doing good. So by God's grace, we desire to be a Christ-centered church for all people. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are welcome here at Door Creek Church. Our hope is together we would be changed into devoted followers of Jesus Christ who changed the world with his love. May the love of God that we celebrate in the gospel continue to unite our hearts as we seek to reach people who don't know Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unchanging word which guides us in these changing times. We bless you for your son who perfectly lived out your word, loving you perfectly, loving his neighbor perfectly. We bless you for your spirit who reminds us when we've strayed from your word, who helps us to take you at your word. And so fill us, Lord, with your spirit, with grace and with truth, that our conversations may honor you, our lives may point people to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever fallen asleep in church? I have. It's one of those hard things to admit. I have to say when you're preaching and you see someone nodding off, it's, it can be challenging. I was a little harder on people falling asleep at church until I built the cabin. It was 10 years ago this fall. And I was working like a banshee with my brother-in-law and a couple guys. And we'd work from sunup to sundown, lifting logs, stacking logs, working hard. And I'd get to church, little Bethel Baptist up in Ellison Bay, and I was fighting it. I'm, I'm a lot more sympathetic. When I was a kid, church service was really long. 
And falling asleep, like, wasn't one of the options. Coloring wasn't one of the It was hard school, you know. Moody and Fuddy, they were, they, they were all over that kind of stuff. You had to pay attention. So I had to be very creative on how to get through these long services with these long sermons. So, yeah, I had a couple tricks. I had a wristwatch with a second hand, and I would time how long I could hold my breath. And I, I was getting pretty good, but I realized you could only do that so long, and then you started hyperventilating, and then, then the trick was over. So then I had this little King James New Testament. It's like six pictures in it, and I loved looking at the pictures, but six pictures, that didn't last too long. Then I found out people fall asleep regularly in church. You can kind of count on it. And that became part of, I mean, that became the greater part of enduring the long service is trying to figure out when is Mr. Anderson in the choir loft going to fall asleep this morning? You can count on poor Mr. Anderson, great guy. He was a landscaper, right? So he was working hard outside all day. It's probably the only time he's ever sat down all week. And the poor guy had to be in a choir that that didn't move out of the choir loft during the message. They stayed up there. So I'd always be waiting to see, when is that head going to start bobbing? And that was great. Then I was hoping Selma, Selma Bixer. She was a friend of my mom. She was from Germany. So the German-Swiss thing, they loved that. They were like, you know, like family. Selma would come to our house. But Selma invariably fell asleep. And the best thing about Selma falling asleep is she would snore. I'm not kidding. Right there in the middle of church. So I'm hoping Selma's going to get into it. I mean, these things were, these were great. I remember one time at Wheaton, there was this guy, a friend of mine, who at an evening, we had morning, we had evening services, and, and Jim was just kind of elbows on his knees, his, his head in his, in his hands, and he started to fall asleep. Now, you know how it is when you fall asleep and you're holding something? All of a sudden, you're not holding something, right? The pen drops, the book drops. Well, all of a sudden, in the middle of the service, he drops his head, so to speak. And because he's leaning over, it hit the top of the pew, in front of him, and there was a thud that went through the whole congregation. I loved that. I, it was just, and I'll tell you why I loved it, because once I was preaching, he didn't do this often, but he did it, and I couldn't believe he did it. He pulled out a nail clipper, and he starts clipping his nails during my sermon, so I thought this was kind of payback. All right, last one. Pastors deal with this. Now, you know, we, we come up, right? We, we don't sit up here, but some of us grew up in churches where the pastors had thrones, right? They got these big chairs, and then the senior pastor gets the big kahuna chair right here. So <clears throat> my senior pastor tells a story when he was a youth pastor in California. He would had a, an exhausting week of student ministry, all right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be like RD at the end of this week and Darren. Just flat out tired. He had responsibilities in the service, so he was up in one of the, in the chairs, right? And he knew, I am so tired, there isn't any way I'm going to make it through this sermon. So he's going, what am I going to do? So just youth pastors are very creative people. He realized there is, there is a wing entrance, like over here, and he pretended like someone was getting his attention. Me? And then he stood up and he just walked off. I thought, I was, I was like, really clever, really clever. Now, when, when kids fell asleep during my teaching as a, as a high school pastor, I, I would just whip an eraser at him or, or a marker. So I, I see you. I see you. I got new glasses. I see you better. So you better watch out. All right. So we laugh about falling asleep in church. But we know there are places you don't want to fall asleep. 
Not a good thing to fall asleep at work, right? Not a good thing. Forbes says one out of three employees fall asleep at work. It's really not a good thing to fall asleep at the wheel. That, that's dangerous. Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 21, go ahead and grab your Bible, is all about falling asleep spiritually and understanding the deadly consequences of falling asleep spiritually. So as you're turning to Luke chapter 21, maybe it's on your phone today, get a Bible in front of you as we're going to work through this whole chapter today. Jesus has been in the temple and he's about to leave the temple. That's the setting, all right? He's cleansed the temple. Remember, he's chased out the money changers who, they, they were awful. They were taking advantage of the poor, charging these exorbitant things. He, he considered them thieves. He says, you turn the house of prayer in a den of thieves. He's been teaching in the, in the temple. The last thing that's happened is he observed people giving offering, that religious leader who gave that big old sack of gold that thudded as it made its way into the coffers, and then that poor widow that gave those two mites all she had. And I, I have this feeling like as they're walking out of the temple, the disciples want to change the subject because most of Jesus' disciples do when it comes to money. It's like a little uncomfortable. And, and Jesus' observation here was not just how much she put in, but how much she had left. That Jesus knows not just what you put in, but what you have left. She gave all that she had. So they're looking for a way to, that was kind of awkward. That's getting close to home. Let's change the subject. As they're walking out, they observe the beauty of the temple and the buildings and the massive stones. That's where we are in verse 5. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? See a picture here of, this is the Wailing Wall, the West Wall. Some of those huge stones can be seen here. Those stones would have been in place in Jesus' day, okay? So they're walking out. The text tells us in Matthew's account of this story, they go down the valley, Kidron Valley, they start going up the Mount of Olives where Jesus sits down and then four of his disciples privately say, Peter, James, Andrew, and John say, Jesus, when's that gonna happen? How are we gonna know? What are the signs? And it's those two questions that frame chapter 21. When is that gonna happen, the temple's destruction? And by the way, this is like a huge, what? The temple? I mean, this is, this is at the center of their worship, destroyed. When? What are the signs? How are we going to be knowing when this is happening? So those two questions frame it. Now, what Jesus does in answering the questions is, is very much akin to the Old Testament prophet. When the Old Testament prophet was prophesying, he usually had two events in view. The near event, the far event, Isaiah 7. Isaiah prophesies about a virgin uh, giving uh, birth to a son. There's a, a near event. There's a further event of Christ's birth. So the near event in Jesus' teaching is the destruction of the temple. The further far event is his second coming. And when Jesus does this, he's helping us understand there's going to be a lot of similarities. There are mere kinds of events that share a lot of common ground. And so here are some of the similarities. They both point 
to cataclysmic events that'll bring great suffering and terror. They both speak of God's judgment. They both offer hope, a promise of deliverance, redemption. They both have signs that precede those great events, yet no exact time is given. They both are connected to Jesus. They both require God's people to be alert, to stay awake. So keep that in mind as we're going through. And understand that what Jesus is going to do is, in answering the question, he's going to start with the far event, then he's going to go to the near event, and then he's going to end with the far event. So sandwiched between Christ's second coming and his teaching on that will be a longer discourse teaching on the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, so he begins to answer right here in verses 8 through 11. He replied, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So the signs, verse 9, are signs not of his coming, but right before his coming. This is the far event. False prophets who will deceive people, wars and uprisings, natural disasters. And Jesus' clear teaching here is don't be deceived. This is the danger that you could be deceived by these false teachers, these people claiming to be Messiah. Don't follow the pretenders. Don't be led astray by people who claim to be me, by people who tell you the end is near. I met some people. I met a guy named Nick who uh, had some emotional issues, and he literally thought he was Jesus. And I could tell you some kind of funny stories of how he would interrupt our services back in Wheaton. But I also can tell you stories of people who have children who followed a would-be Messiah, and it's a nightmare story. And there's false teachers. And he says they're going to come before the end. And we live in these last days. The days between Christ's first coming and second coming are the last days. There are false teachers who would lead, the Bible says, even God's elect, his chosen people, away from God. In Matthew 24, 5, same parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive, how many? Many, many. The next section then goes to that near event, the destruction of Jerusalem. And note how verse 12 starts, before all this. But before all this, so there's the, there's the end event of Christ's return, there are the signs before the end of the event, and before all this, now we're to the near event, Okay. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. That's the, a lot of the stories of the book of Acts. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you'll bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself. For I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. 
When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it'll be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what are the signs? He says, persecution. Well, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they knew all about that. They would live that in the next 40 years. So Jesus, here's the chronology, right? Jesus at the end of his life, or at the early part of the 30s, all right, A.D. So 30 to 33, scholars say somewhere in that period. The fall of Jerusalem, A.D. 70, under Titus, the military leader. So um, these, these guys are going to live through this period. They're going to experience persecution, betrayal by family and friends, killed, some of them for your faith, he says, hated because of Jesus. And he tells them not only the signs, but why it is. Because they got to be scratching their head going, why in the world would God allow his holy, his holy place to be desecrated and destroyed? And Jesus tells why. Because God's punishing his people. It's the same kind of thing that goes on in the Old Testament when God's people are taken out of the promised land because of their disobedience towards God, their unfaithfulness to those in their own family. Remember in chapter 13, Jesus says, talking about the people of God in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem represents the people of God. He says, oh, how I wanted to just gather you in my arms. I had such love and affection for you like a, a mother hen with her chicks. But you, chapter 13, 34, were unwilling. You, you didn't want it. I, I, I wanted to share my love and peace with you, but you, you didn't want any of it. Remember when he goes into the, temp, in, into the city in chapter 19, R.D., preached on this a few weeks ago? Here it is again, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's why he's weeping, because they won't recognize it. He is the, the promised Messiah they'd pin their hopes on. And so church history gives us the record. Actually, the historian is, is a Jew named Josephus. Let me first show you the picture as I read Josephus' account of this. This is a, a picture by a painting by Poussin in, in the early 1600s of that day. So Josephus, a Jewish historian who was in Jerusalem, kind of under the protective care of Titus, the general who attacks Jerusalem, who had once and in the future become emperor of Rome, he wrote these words. You would have thought that the hill on which the temple stood was boiling from the bottom upwards, that everywhere was a mass of flames, that here lay a sea of blood deeper than the fire, that there were more killed than killers. You could not see a single piece of ground anywhere because it was so thickly covered with bodies 
forcing the soldiers to climb over them in order to reach further victims. Jesus' words came true 40 years later. And Jesus tells them and tells us because what we're going to see is that the signs that precede the destruction are also signs that precede his return. And ever since Christ's death, bodily resurrection, and ascension, there has been persecution of those who follow Christ. And so Jesus says, expect suffering. Don't be surprised. Stand firm. Don't give up. Endure. That word means stay under the weight of it and let it push you to Christ and make you more like Christ. Don't abandon your faith. I'll defend you. I will give you words. I'll give you wisdom. He says and promises you may suffer death, but they won't touch a hair on your head. Now you put those two together and go, what? I was kind of thinking when they won't touch a hair on my head means I'm good. You just said I'm, I'm dead. How's this work? Well, because Jesus says in another place, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. You will win life, verse 19, eternal life. They can't take that from you as, <clears throat> as you stand firm, trusting, pinning your hopes on Christ. And if you are there, this doesn't apply to us, you better run because there's nothing special about that city on that day. There's nothing special about this temple on that day. It's not gonna save you. Just run for the hills. Don't let anybody come in and everybody get out because it's gonna be a bloodbath. You rejected the offer of salvation and peace that I brought, and now you will suffer the consequences. That's the near event. Now he goes back to the far event, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. So that's a new sign. Now we're talking about the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man. This is that messianic title that comes out of the book of Daniel that Jesus used of himself. It's a messianic title. It speaks of the Messiah. Jesus is speaking about himself. At that time, they will see the Son of Man, me, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And so now he tweaks, gives us a few more signs. Not only are there the false prophets, not only are there the natural disasters of earthquake famines, but now there's some new signs, the roaring, the tossing of the sea, the, the, the galaxy somehow being affected, shaken. And then he, he gives us the event, the Son of Man coming with power. This is where all of history is going. Jesus is before history, as we just sang. He knows history. He holds history. He's the goal of history, the Son of of man's return. So then he tells a parable. We need to learn the lesson of the fig tree. And it's not a mysterious parable at all. The disciples didn't say, hey, what did you mean by that? It's really clear. Listen to it. He told them this parable, verse 29. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The point's clear. Just like here, it's not just in the Middle East. You got the bud, you got the leaf, and we know summer's coming, right? You see these signs? You know his return is near. So stand up, look, your redemption, your Savior's coming to redeem you. The freedom that is bought with a price is really clear. It's really clear. What's not so clear is what does he mean in verse 32? Go look down at verse 32. Because this is a little bit of a conundrum when you first read it. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So who's this generation? What are all these things? Is it the generation that he's speaking to, that he's part of? If it is, hey, it's been 2,000 years since that time, and Christ hasn't returned. So they missed it if we've missed it, right? So how is it? This, so some people go, no, it actually is this generation, but don't get into this near event, far event thing. It's all about the near event. All these references to Christ's return have to do with his return of judgment when Jerusalem's destroyed. That's how they work that out. Then, and I, I tend to lean more to this, it's an understanding that, well, we need to understand who, he's, who is he referring to, this generation. Is it, the, is it the disciples, Peter, John, Andrew, James, and their contemporaries? Or is it those that make up this new section that began in verse 25 when he went from the near event to the far event? The people who would see these signs, and because it's gonna happen so quickly, he says, stand up, lift up your head, because you're rede- it's all going to happen really short. That generation is going to see the signs. That generation is going to see Christ's return. I think that's the better reading of the text. In either case, Jesus knows, and he tells us his word is more permanent, more sure than even the galaxies, than the foundations of the earth. And he goes on then with some careful teaching that brings a point of application. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it'll come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and pray that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, pay attention. Don't fall asleep. Be ready for my return. And so guard your heart. Don't let your heart get weighed down. In chapter 9, that same Greek word is used to describe Peter who is in a deep sleep. He's weighed down with a deep sleep. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. It's called the Septuagint. The word that they use to translate Pharaoh's hard heart is this same word, weighed down. Don't fall into this deep sleep so that your heart is dull. Don't let your heart get dulled to the things of God. Well, how would it get dulled? By indulging in temptation, carousing, the things that people do in drunkenness, usually associated with sensuality, drunkenness. Don't get caught up with the fears and anxieties of this world. It'll keep you away from a focus on Christ. and It'll cause you to not be ready for his return. So as we bring it home, 
I, I want us to marvel at how, how relevant this is when at, at first value going, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happened like almost 2,000 years ago, and the return of Christ, and that hasn't happened for 2,000 years, and how, who knows how long that's going to take. It, it's just unbelievably relevant to my life and to your life today. Because the dangers that he speaks about are dangers that we need to have our eyes open to so that we stay awake spiritually to God, his purposes, his work in our life, his work in this world, so that we are ready to meet Christ, whether he calls us home today or comes to take us to that new heaven and new earth. What are the dangers? There's the danger of deception, of people, authors, writers that we're listening to that are leading us away from Jesus, claiming that they've got the inner truth, that they might even be the Messiah, that they know the timeline of his return. Jesus says, I don't even know the hour. False teachers. There's this great danger of suffering and having hard things in our life Push us away from God. God, I've been trying to, to, to serve you and trying to be faithful and all this junk is going on in my life. What is the deal? I, I thought I, I signed up for a God who's in control and loves me and this feels like nothing like that and, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of just checking out. I'm out. I'm out. It's a, it's a great danger that we have false expectations about suffering and they come and we go, I, I, don't, I don't want it. I didn't sign up for this. And there's a great danger of our hearts over time getting hard as we get distracted by things that turn us away from God. The carousing, the drunkenness, the anxieties of life. That's not the complete list. It's just a, a sampling of things that could turn our hearts away from God. And so let me ask you some questions. How vulnerable are you to being deceived. And before you kind of give that quick answer that's very subjective, the kind of right answer, oh, I'm good, I know the difference. <laughs> Let me ask you some questions. How well do you know the Bible? Are you in the Bible? If we don't know the Bible, if we're not in the Word of God, we're not gonna know the, the counterfeit. What kind of friends do you hang out to when you're making decisions in life? Who, who, who are you listening to? Who's got your ear? Who's got your heart? Do you have godly people in your life that you can go to and say, how do I think about these things? Are you doing the Christian life in community or all by yourself, Lone Ranger? If you're all by yourself, way easier to get picked off. Living in community, you're part of a life group, part of a men's study, part of a women's study, part of a group that's serving together, much harder. How vulnerable. Second, what are your expectations for the Christian life related to suffering? Do you expect that? Or feel like, no, I, I, I actually, I'm going to get a pass because I am doing the work. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to get a free ride. Jesus did the work perfectly and got crucified on a cross. When he called us to follow him, he said, take up your cross. He didn't say, go get your crown. He didn't say, go get your sword. Take up your cross. Follow me. 
Third question. Are you spiritually awake? Are you spiritually asleep? Are you ready to meet Jesus today? Are you ready to meet him when he comes back to earth? How's your heart? Is it soft to God? Is it cold, hard toward God? Are you following your heart or God's heart? Are, are you falling asleep? It, it is not an accident that you are here today. God knows exactly where you are. I don't know where you are. But I know in a room this size, there's some of us that are nodding off. Nodding off spiritually is as deadly as falling asleep at the wheel. In 1984, it was my first mission trip with the kids down in Wheaton, and we were heading to Canton, Mississippi, two vanfuls of kids, there's 21 of us, going down to Canton Bible Baptist where our college students had been serving faithfully over the years. And the deal was, when you go down to Canton, it's really hot down there, and so the best thing is to travel at night. That was a bad idea. And that's what the college students always did, and that's what we said we'd do, and, and the deal was really clear. Every two hours, we stopped, we changed drivers, and the shotgun had to stay awake. So I'm in one van with my intern, Scott, a group of kids, and another intern, Barbie, and another volunteer, Rich, was in another van. And every two hours, we stopped, and we switched drivers, and what I didn't know is Rich never went to the back to sleep because he was kind of had a liking for Barbie. So he thought, I'm just staying up here talking to this wonderful young lady. Well, five in the morning, everybody in that van was asleep except for Barbie. Rich was asleep, all the kids were asleep. At five o'clock, after about an hour of rest, in the back of my van, I heard these words, Mark, they just rolled the van. Scott's a prankster. I thought, nice, Scott, that was good. I turn back, look through the back windows of the van, and I see in the distance the van making its final turn, landing on its head, the wheels spinning. I couldn't believe it. We turned the van around, and as we approached the northbound, now we're in the northbound, we see the van with debris, doors open, debris all over the place, kids starting to crawl out. And most alarmingly, we saw Barbie, the driver, in the middle of the highway, motionless. I thought she was dead. My heart was pounding. I was just praying out loud. And we were in survival mode. By the grace of God, Barbie suffered just a few broken vertebrae and there are a few concussions. And when I found out what happened, here's what happened. At five o'clock in the morning, everybody was asleep, right? Including Rich. And Barbie started to nod off. And as she fell asleep, the van veered off and hit the rumble strips. That woke 
You know how it is when you hit the rumble strips, right? If you're, man, is that, does that wake you up in a hurry if you're not driving? Yes, it does. Rich wakes up. He says, Barbie, Barbie. She wakes up. She overcorrects. She overcorrects. She overcorrects. Flips the van like four or five times. You just heard the rumble strips. Did you hear them? The rumble strip of God's word. The rumble strip of his spirit in you that's saying that's right. The rumble spirit, that the rumble strips are gracious provisions that keep us on the road, safe, awake. There, there isn't anybody here that has gone off and been led astray by a false teacher or teaching that Jesus doesn't say, hey, man, like a, a mother hen or chicks, I, I want to just take you in my arms. There isn't anybody here who chucked it through hard suffering, say, I can't do it anymore. I'm not following you anymore. There isn't anybody where Jesus says, hey, man, I went to the cross for you, so if you can't get it out for me, forget it then. No, he says, I went to the cross for you. It's okay. That's covered too. There isn't anybody who's fallen into temptation and who's allowed their heart to become stone cold dead. That God doesn't say, let me give you a new life. Let me give you a new life. Here are the rumble strips this morning. Let the vision that Jesus paints here of his glorious, powerful son who died on the cross for you and me. Keep us awake and on our feet until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life who never gave in to temptation. You suffered the ultimate, not just the physical death, but taking on all of our junk. And we believe with all our heart, even as Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70, that you are coming back and that no one knows the time and that a lot of people won't be ready, but we want to be ready and we want to ready as many people as we can. So wake us up. Let us hear the rumble strips of your word, of your spirit, that we would be ready to meet you and get as many ready to meet you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And God, all God's people said, amen. amen.